There was a debate in the early United States of America about armed forces. The 13 British colonies in America defeated Great Britain by pooling their resources, by raising up a continental army. And that's how they won their independence. But now they were trying to decide whether or not the federal government, that is the government set above all the states, as opposed to the individual state governments, whether it should be allowed to maintain a military during peacetime. And some thought a central power maintaining an army or a navy would tend to be a threat to the liberty of individual states. They wanted to put all these restrictions and conditions on when that federally controlled military should be allowable. Now, we read a quote on Lysander from the U.S. founding father, Alexander Hamilton, in part one of this series, and this is the debate that that quote comes from. This is the context. This is the reason he brought Lysander up in the first place. And after that quote, I didn't read that far then, but now I will. After that quote, he gives an implicit take on Lysander that I think is worth our attention here. This is Federalist Paper 25, and here's what I read in episode one already. The Lacedaemonians, he says, to gratify their allies and yet preserve the semblance of an adherence to their ancient institutions, had recourse to the flimsy subterfuge of investing Lysander with the real power of admiral under the nominal title of vice admiral, end quote. And I don't want to get too deep into the context here, but Hamilton's basic position is the U.S. federal government should be allowed to maintain a military. And all of these rules and conditions that people are proposing are mostly a bad idea. And Lysander gives the reason why. In other words, here's the lesson of Lysander and really the Spartan constitution in general from Hamilton's perspective. He says, we don't want to make laws that we're going to have to break someday in times of necessity because, quote, every breach of the fundamental laws, though it be dictated by necessity, impairs that sacred reverence which ought to be maintained in the breast of rulers towards the constitution of a country and forms a precedent for other breaches where the same plea of necessity does not exist at all or is less urgent and palpable. End quote. So sacred reverence toward the constitution of a country, precedent for breaches. In other words, when you break one rule in a situation of emergency, it often leads to a questioning or even a contempt of rules in general. The Spartans had a rule. Navarc is a one-year, once-in-a-lifetime office, no repeats. But they knew that they wanted Lysander to lead the war against Athens, so they used their little constitutional sleight of hand and made him vice-Navarc, but with full command power. And so they maintained the letter of the law, but completely ignored its spirit. Hamilton's take on Lysander is that he's a cautionary tale. And Hamilton must have in mind the events that we'll discuss in this episode, Lysander's revolutionary path. Hamilton could see that a basic principle of the Spartan laws was a certain power-sharing policy. It was even a form of egalitarianism, though, of course, an egalitarianism that was strictly limited to the Spartiate warrior elite. And the laws ensured that no Spartiate could gain too much influence in the state and thereby destabilize the balance of power. But Lysander was one of those rare Spartans 
who dared to wonder, was that long-standing egalitarianism, if you will, was that what really made Sparta Sparta? Was it their rigid adherence to an ancient constitution with ancient rules? Was stability of the state really an end in itself and not rather merely a means? Can't stability, adherence to tradition, be put aside now and then when great prizes are on the table, when greater glory is at stake? After all, the man who originally came up with most of Sparta's current constitution, the ancient lawgiver Lycurgus, he was called an innovator in his day, wasn't he? But then, how far can you bend your constitution before it snaps? I'm Alex Petkus, and you are listening to The Cost of Glory, where it is our mission to retell the lives of the great Greek and Roman leaders in order to prepare ourselves for the chaos and upheavals and opportunities that we may face, maybe tomorrow, maybe today. We use Plutarch as our guide. This is part three of three of the life of Lysander. When we last left Lysander, he was outside Athens. He and his brother sieged the Athenian Democrat rebels at the port of Piraeus by land and sea. And by the way, sadly, this is really the only time that we ever hear anything about Lysander's brother, just about. But then the Spartans dispatched King Pausanias and a Spartan land army, and with the support of the Ephors and even the other king, King Agus, King Pausanias negotiated a peace between the two warring factions at Athens. And Lysander's pro-Spartan oligarchic partisans, the ones he had installed to keep the city loyal to Sparta, the Thirty, they fell from power. A few of the leaders of the Thirty were exiled, and the Athenian democracy was reestablished. And not only that, the ephors withdrew Spartan support for Lysander's decarchies in the cities throughout the Aegean. So what did the other Greeks think? Looking on as the Spartans dragged Lysander down from high Olympus back to the dust of Lacedaemon. And what was going on in his mind? Well, many of the Greeks are relieved. The Spartans entered the Peloponnesian War with the promise to break the tyranny of Athens and their naval empire. But when they won, instead of leaving everybody else to go about their business, they quickly put together what was starting to look like an empire of their own. And many would say, how much more oppressive than the Athenians were the Spartans turning out to be? Their decarchies and their harmosts and their garrisons. The Spartan Empire might soon be even greater and more intractable than the one the Athenians had. But others would say, well, hasn't recent history shown that this freedom of yours is a flash in a pan, an empty word, if it isn't backed by force? If the Spartans retreat into their happy little valley in the Peloponnese, how long is it going to be before the Athenians sweep back into the void? Or maybe some coalition of stronger islands will do it. Or, most likely of all, the Persians. And say what you will about the abuses of the Delian League, that was the official name of Athens' imperial coalition back in the day, when it was standing, it successfully kept the Persians from controlling the Aegean shipping lanes. No... Greeks can no longer cherish this fantasy of hundreds of independent city-states left to their own affairs. It's a pre-Persian dream world. You might as well be talking about the mythic times of the Trojan War. No, 
Now, the greatest hope for Greek freedom is to be found in fighting under the best leader. The real question is, who will be the best leader? A barbarian absentee landlord? That is, the king of Persia? A tyrannical mob of fullers and cart pullers and sausage sellers and bald tinkers? The Athenian Democrats? Or is it, rather, a noble brotherhood of the greatest soldiers the world has ever seen, the children of Hercules, the lords of Lacedaemon. Haven't they already proven that when duty calls, they're willing to sacrifice everything? Their 300 best fighters and one of their greatest kings sworn to fight to the death for Greek freedom at Thermopylae. And now, 80 years later, the Spartans finally have a beachhead in Asia, many coastal cities that Lysander is effectively annexed from the hands of the local Persian governor, Tissaphernes, Ephesus, Miletus, Colophon. Such were the thoughts of other Greeks. But now Lysander had fallen, and this plunged many into doubt and uncertainty. The decarchy arrangement was a brilliant, strong system. Strong local men backed by Spartan military supremacy. The only way this order would fail is if the Spartans lost their resolve, if they gave up the will to dominate. And now... They had done just that. Call it resentment against Lysander's ambition, call it maintaining the internal balance of power, or call it staying true to the Spartan tradition of respecting autonomy in the wider Greek world. Whatever you said, deposing the Thirty and the Decarchies could only mean that the Spartans had faltered in their will to lead. And weren't the Spartans at their greatest when leading Greeks to fight the Persians? Now that the Decarchies were collapsing, Spartan Harmosts, the Fixers, they were already starting to lose focus, to grow abusive to local populations that they often held in utter contempt. And what's more, sure enough, within just months of the decree of abolishment, Tissaphernes, the local Persian governor, that is, the satrap of Lydia, swept in and reestablished Persian control of the coastline. So... What was going on in Lysander's mind as he watched his careful work collapse with the construction scaffolding still attached? Not because of some failure of its own engineering, but through the stubbornness and resentment of personal enemies at home. Well, we have to judge a man by his actions. And next, Lysander decided to turn to the gods. Perhaps it was because he knew, as one modern scholar has put it, that Sparta was a state beyond all others swayed by the fear of the gods. But it wasn't because he wanted some kind of spiritual consolation so that he could more comfortably resign himself to failure. No, he needed the gods' help if he was going to change the rules at Sparta. He was going to Delphi with kingship on his mind. While all of the several thousand full Spartiate warrior nobles were considered equals, homoioi, there were two exceptions. Sparta was ruled by two hereditary kings from two rival houses. It was one of their oldest and certainly most unusual institutions, and they traced this dual kingship back to two great-grandsons of Heracles, that is Hercules. But the ancient stories told that there was a time many years in the past, after the initial founding, when a great debate 
about the Constitution arose, and everything in politics was up for question. And the Spartans decided to seek the advice of the Pythia, that is, the representative of the god Apollo at the great oracle of Delphi in central Greece. There were tensions between the two kings that sometimes turned violent. Was this really best for Sparta? The god, however, resolutely affirmed that the Spartans should keep their two kings. And the Spartans came to see that the fierce rivalry between the two royal houses was maybe actually a good thing, a healthy thing. They kept each other in check. And over time, this oracle of Apollo, the oracle of Delphi, the Pythia, she became a sort of divine referee whenever disputes about the kingship arose, which was not uncommon. For example, in the days of King Darius of Persia, this is Darius I, some hundred years or so before Lysander's time, one Spartan king managed to produce an oracle, that is, an oracular message, that declared his rival king illegitimate on the authority of the god Apollo. And the other king was exiled, and he actually fled to Persia. And amazingly, the first king, the winner, was widely believed to have bribed the Pythia, but the exile remained in place. And another king, two generations after that, was exiled for some other reason, and his brother bribed the oracle again to have the king restored to legitimacy. And this sort of thing was, of course, frowned upon by the Greeks. That's certainly impious and wicked. But if it worked, as it often did, wasn't that proof that that's what the god willed after all? So, Lysander had a plan worthy of Apollo's attention. Because, having elevated Sparta higher and having achieved feats greater than any Spartan before him, not through superior birth or wealth, but through the pure, extraordinary force of his character, he wondered, why should his city be ruled by men who were no better than himself? And his plan was to take the government away from the two royal houses and to open up the kingship to all the Spartan warrior nobles. After all, it was not for Hercules' divine birth, but for the great services he worked for mankind that he was invited to join the company of the gods. He earned it, and Sparta's kings should be chosen, not merely born. Lysander had no doubt this would be better for his city, and that it would refine even more minutely the principle of cultivating excellence that was the real foundation of Sparta's superiority. But of course, if this change was brought about, how could he not expect that he himself might be chosen as king? And would he not make a great king? Lysander, the Mothox, who had already addressed kings as equals, who had led military forces of royal proportions. Now, this kind of revolutionary proposal is going to plummet and smack down on the ground straight out of the nest if it doesn't have the buy-in from the Gerousia and the Ephors. It's going to take some persuading. So to begin with, Lysander has a clever sophist friend of his, that guy named Cleon, compose the perfect speech that he would present in front of the Spartan Supreme Council after memorizing it. But the Spartan authorities are only going to be receptive to the idea if a god wills it too. Lysander's timing, however, is pretty good. 
Every eight years, the Efers conduct a mystical sky-watching ritual to detect omens about the kingship. Is the kingship ill-starred? Do the gods still approve? Well, it just so happens that this is the eighth year, and the ritual is coming up. Now, usually it's just a sort of ceremonial rubber stamp on the status quo, but all the same... There's going to be a mood in town, and people will be particularly open to divine intervention. So Lysander heads to Delphi. Through his connections, Lysander finds out that there's a certain Greek woman from faraway Pontus on the Black Sea, and this lady has been going around from town to town, talking her way into respectable mainstream Greek circles. And she's got this story that her son is the son of the god Apollo. Yes. Don't the myths tell that the gods sometimes come down and commingle with mortals? And she took a boy around with her, showing him off to people. Here he is. Not so uncommon to see the sort of claim made, but this woman actually had managed to persuade a number of relatively serious people to believe the story. Amazing. Well, Lysander can certainly work with this. So he weaves together an elaborate drama. He convinces the Pythia to send word to Sparta that they must receive a message of urgent concern to the sons of Heracles, a message from the god Apollo. But it can only be given to a true son of Apollo. And then the boy that we mentioned before is supposed to go to Delphi and bring back a secret oracle from the Pythia to the Spartans. An oracle, of course, demanding that the ephors discern the astral signs and revise the Spartan kingship, and on and on. And nobody was going to be able to see Lysander's prints on the story, and then he was going to be able to make his speech before the assembly. But at the last minute, one of his associates, who was secretly helping him to push the story, loses nerve. He's terrified of what might happen if they get found out. Rightly so. And so after all that preparation, the whole thing falls through. Lysander, still not daunted, he goes to the mountainous wilds of northern Greece, to the Oracle of Dodona in Epirus. There's a famous Oracle of Zeus there. And he tries to persuade the priests there to scheme with him, but the priestess refuses to cooperate. And so, as a last-ditch effort to save his quest, he crosses the sea, travels to Libya, makes the journey several days over the dunes and salt flats into the Sahara Desert, to the Siwa Oasis, where there was an oracle of Zeus Amun, or Amun-Ra, to the nearby Egyptians. The oracle, though, was actually operated by a colony of Greeks, and Lysander happened to know their king. And he goes to the oracle and beseeches the god, and he brings many gifts, very lavish gifts, to the god, well, to the god's interpreters, that is, and he tells them about some strange dreams that he's been having. Perhaps Lord Amon may give me and Sparta some clarity about what these strange dreams mean. But they turn him away too. The god sees nothing in your dreams, nor does he care for your gifts. And so Lysander returns home empty-handed. And the oracle of Amon actually sends an embassy to denounce him to the Spartans for attempted bribery. 
But Lysander had been very careful about what he revealed to the priests there about his full revolutionary designs. And so the story about his arguably treasonous intentions didn't get out publicly. Not then, at least. Lysander was fully acquitted by a special inquiry of the Gerousia, but there was no point in pushing this plan any further now. The perfect speech he had commissioned, that he had memorized to deliver in front of the Spartan assembly, he put it in a chest and hid it in a secret place in his house. No one must ever find it. But such a powerful idea, such a brilliant plan, it seemed a shame to let it vanish without a trace. Now what way forward was there for Lysander at Sparta? Well, pretty soon a door opened up, but not at home, in the east. King Darius of Persia finally passed away, and he was succeeded by his son, Artaxerxes. In other words, the older brother of Lysander's friend, Prince Cyrus. But many Persians thought that Cyrus was a better fit to rule, including the mother of both of them, the queen, so then Cyrus was going to lead an uprising, a march on Babylon to take the throne from his brother. Then he was recruiting Greeks to be the elite infantry vanguard. The Cyrus and Darius that we've been talking about here in this series, by the way, these are different from the ones that uh, Herodotus and the Hebrew Bible talk about. That's Cyrus the Great and Darius the Great. The people in this story were named after those more famous kings. But our Cyrus, though, the prince... Well, at this point, he was looking for good leaders to help lead his rebellion. And there could be no doubt that Lysander got the call to join Cyrus and aid his mission. But for reasons that we don't know, he did not end up going. Cyrus found another Spartan to lead his contingent of 10,000 Greek mercenaries. It was a man named Clearchus, a cruel, brutish man who was serving as harmost of one of the Asian cities near the Straits at the time. And the expedition marched all the way to Babylon. Clearchus and the Greeks were supposed to be Cyrus's elite bodyguard. But they ended up failing Prince Cyrus in the great battle of Kunaxa. Cyrus's army actually won the battle, but he himself was killed. And the cause was, of course, utterly lost at that point. By the way, when this rebellion failed, it stranded the remainder of those 10,000 Greeks deep in Mesopotamia, in hostile territory. And the story of their invasion and the harrowing escape that they made afterward, it's told in a book called Anabasis, which is Greek for The Ascent, which is written by one of the Greeks who joined in, Xenophon. That was 401 BC, two years after the fall of the 30. Why didn't Lysander go instead of Clearchus? If he had gone, maybe he could have served Cyrus better, secured the throne for his young Persian friend. How different might history have gone if Cyrus had lived and the new Persian king, who defeated his brother, had kept Lysander as his most trusted advisor for Greek affairs? The possibility must surely have occurred to him. Why didn't he go? Maybe he felt that serving as a mercenary, as a free agent, acting outside the framework of the state, was beneath him at this point in his career. Maybe he felt that Considering all the resentment and suspicion that he was facing at home, his enemies might use his absence to undermine him, launch some prosecution or other, make it difficult for him ever to return to leadership. 
but maybe he was already seeing greater possibilities on the horizon at home. One of the kings, Agus, was getting very old and sickly. Normally, the kingship was supposed to pass from one king to his firstborn son. The problem was, Agus didn't have a son. Well, he didn't have a legitimate son. His wife bore a son, all right. But the calendar math just didn't add up. The boy couldn't be King Agus's. In fact, Agus didn't even need to do any math. His wife had been rather open about who the boy's actual father was. It was Alcibiades, the rogue Athenian general. Everyone in the city knew it. The boy's name was Laotikidas, and King Agus refused to acknowledge the kid as his own. It would have been a disgrace. In the absence of a legitimate son, the crown would go to King Agus's nearest male kinsman. And that was very good for Lysander, because the nearest male kinsman was Lysander's mentee and protege, King Agus's much younger brother, Agesilaus. He and Lysander had gone through the Agoge together. Future kings weren't usually supposed to be educated in the same way as other Spartans, but in those days, Agesilaus wasn't expected to be a future king, so he had been through the same grueling training as the toughest of them. And he and Lysander had a, a special bond. When King Agus is on his deathbed, however, he has a change of heart, and he finally adopts Laotikidas as his own. Apparently, some of Lysander's enemies helped King Agus to see the bigger picture. What was at stake if Lysander's man became king? Surely, Agesilaus was simply going to be a puppet to this most ambitious, most unspartan Spartan, who's already proven himself to be a danger to the state and has rightly been put in his place. But Agesilaus and Lysander have their own very vocal supporters, too. So, now, with King Agus dead, and, by the way, there were some questions about whether he was really Campos Mentis when he adopted Laotikidas as his own, but there was nothing to be done at that point. So, King Agus is dead. There's a dispute now about who the throne should go to. Agesilaus, the younger brother of the king, or Laotikidas, the son of Alcibiades and recently adopted son of the king. The Laotikidas party gets a seer involved, a religious specialist. Now, Agesilaus happened to have some sort of permanent problem with his gait. He had a limp or a hobble of some sort. And so the Spartan seer produces an allegedly ancient prophecy written in the typical hexameter verse that said something like, Beware, O Sparta, of a lame kingship. Or you might translate it, a limping kingship. Beware, or else long wars and unexpected toils will oppress you. So, in Spartan circles, there's much concerned nodding of heads among the wise about this lame kingship oracle, the Chole Basileia. Hmm, Agesilaus is a lame king. Seems pretty clear-cut, doesn't it? But come on. These people were amateurs if they thought it was going to be that easy to outfox Lysander. Lysander goes around and he makes the argument, no, no, you haven't interpreted the prophecy correctly. Clearly the thing that would make Sparta's kingship truly hobble would be a bastard son of Alcibiades on the throne. And Lysander was wise on this point because indeed few Spartans really wanted that. 
Laotikidas is also a teenager, but Agesilaus is in his early 40s, battle-tested and well-liked on top of it all. And so Agesilaus is made king. Finally, Lysander's years of patience are paying off. He now has in place everything he needs to execute a grand scheme to fulfill Sparta's destiny as the greatest city of Greece to lead them in a war of retribution against the Persians. Because the Greeks of Asia, by now, are desperate for it. Tissaphernes, the Persian governor who once did his best to choke off the Persians' support of the Spartan navy, the man who wanted the Spartans and Athenians to grind each other down and destroy each other in an endless war, Tissaphernes is rallying Persian dominance in a vacuum of leadership in Asia. And he and King Artaxerxes resent the Greeks for joining Cyrus's coup and nearly taking the throne. They want to make sure nothing like that ever happens again. And as they take back the cities in Asia, they reimpose their harsh rule and their crushing dissenters mercilessly Persian style. Lysander, though, is still the best connected man in Asia, and some of his decarchies are still managing to hold on. And now he has a willing Spartan king. He sends out messages to all his friends in Asia. And soon, embassies start coming to Lacedaemon from all the Greeks in or near the Persian sphere of influence, begging the Spartans to send King Agesilaus and a Peloponnesian army and lead them in a holy war against the Persian tyranny. With their forces combined, the Greeks can clear the Persians from the shores of the Aegean permanently. And if they manage to do that, what will stop them from pressing deeper into the king's territory? If Cyrus's expedition had accomplished anything, it was convincing the Greeks, at least 10,000 or so of them, that Persia was no longer invincible. So, this was promising to be the most aggressive, ambitious campaign that the Spartans have ever authorized, and Sparta looked really strong to outsiders. But at this time, she was also facing serious manpower problems. Their Spartiate warrior elite had been massively depleted by nearly 30 years of war. And there were commanders and garrisons and cities all over the Aegean now. They were spread dangerously thin. And Sparta had also faced some internal civil unrest, too. So this was a major risk, not just to the reputation of Sparta, but to its very existence. And the campaign is to be entrusted to a fresh new king? And sure, Agesilaus has fought in the army already, but is he really fit to command? And on an endeavor of this scale and difficulty? But it wasn't just Agesilaus that they were trusting, was it? As everyone saw, it was Lysander too, his mentor. And so the Spartans agree to send the force with Agesilaus at its head, the brand new king. And in fact, Agesilaus recognized openly that Lysander's procuring of this command for him was an even greater favor than raising him to the throne. And of course, Lysander joined him on his Asian expedition. And the mood of it all was grand and portentous. The army set out in 396 BC after a great sacrifice at Aulis in Boeotia. That's a place of great symbolic significance. It's where King Agamemnon sacrificed before taking the Greek fleet east to the mythic Trojan War. And when they arrive at Ephesus in Asia, 
Tissaphernes sends an ambassador and asks Agesilaus with what intention he was landing in Asia. And Agesilaus replies that the cities in Asia shall be independent, as are those in our part of Greece. The game was afoot. But as they're reestablishing themselves in Lysander's old base in Ephesus, Lysander makes a crucial misjudgment of the situation. He allows all the familiar city leaders and mercenary commanders and town councils, and the Persians too, and most critically, he allows himself to believe that it will all be more or less a resumption of business as usual. The doors of Lysander's residence become routinely crowded with visitors as they come to make requests, offer pledges of loyalty, or simply to see the great commander himself in his terrifying majesty. Agesilaus, however, despite his royal office, is being ignored. And Plutarch describes the situation here colorfully. Quote, And just as in performances on the tragic stage, it often happens that an actor playing the messenger or servant makes a brilliant performance and steals the show, whereas the actor who bears the crown and the scepter is not even listened to when he speaks. So in this case, the whole honor of the government was associated with the counselor, that is Lysander, and there was left for the king only the empty name of power. End quote. And maybe these men in Asia were thinking back to the situation when Lysander as vice navarch was de facto commander of the Spartan fleet, even though he held a minor office earlier in his career. And they could be forgiven, perhaps. And even Lysander might himself be forgiven for underestimating Agesilaus, letting their roles get a little confused. How could he or anyone really know then that the man that he was upstaging would go down in history as the most ambitious and energetic king that ever was to reign in Sparta. In retrospect, it's easy to see that although they differed in style, Agesilaus was every bit Lysander's equal in intelligence and in leadership talent and also in pure will to dominate. And Likewise, it wasn't just ambition to promote himself, but a thirst for the glory of Sparta too. And more on him when we get to Plutarch's biography of Agesilaus. Agesilaus wasn't that much younger, and though he was, in fact, a patient and generous man by disposition, he didn't like being outshined. And he actually did hold the real authority here. The Spartans sent along... 30 high-ranking Spartiate leaders with him as his aides and advisors, and Lysander was one of these. And these Spartiates and all the army were loyal to the king, as the laws specified. And these advisors kept approaching Agesilaus, reminding him of how he was coming off in public in comparison to Lysander. And so it starts to happen that They'll have their war councils and discuss strategy, logistics, justice. And Lysander starts to notice that whatever policies he favors, Agesilaus ignores or does exactly the opposite. And whenever Lysander recommends his friends for favors from Agesilaus, 
these men's very friendship with Lysander starts to increase the chances that they will walk away from the Spartan king empty-handed. And in suits and disputes about matters of justice, anyone who Lysander speaks against is likely to come off victorious, and anyone he advocates for loses their case. And Lysander soon perceives what's going on. As happens so often, the ambitious protege must reject his mentor, destroy him even, if necessary, in order to bring about his own rise. And Agesilaus has picked this moment to do so. It's more than resentment fueling Agesilaus now. Lysander starts telling his friends and clients, if you're going to approach Agesilaus, don't mention my name for your own sake. And some comply, but crowds still follow Lysander around as he walks in the parks and the gymnasia, and the king sees, and he is not pleased. And soon, when the campaign starts to take shape and the Spartans start taking back control of Asian cities, most of the 30 Spartiate advisors that Agesilaus took along receive commands in the field and governorships of cities, posts of honor and responsibility. But Lysander, Agesilaus makes the royal carver of meats. Carver of meats. Agesilaus makes it plain to everyone, too, that he meant it quite frankly as an insult to Lysander. In one of his councils, the king is being addressed by some petitioners who are asking for some sort of favor that he clearly thought was not worthy of his attention. And in the hearing of many people, he says, with a note of contempt, let these suppliants be off and go to my carver of meats and do their groveling before him. And you know, in a way, it wasn't personal. But Lysander, because of all he symbolized to the Spartans, to the Greeks, and to the Persians too, Lysander was the man that Agesilaus needed to make personally suffer insult after insult. He had to be cleared out of the way and nothing short of direct, unambiguous, public humiliation would do the job. And you know it's a testament to the power of Spartan restraint, their famous laconic style of speaking and being in the world, their ability to communicate with actions rather than words, not to publicize their struggles, that our sources offer so few glimpses of emotion to illuminate this titanic clash of egos. Here were two of Sparta's most brilliant and ambitious leaders ever. They entered into manhood as best of friends, knew each other on the most intimate terms, shared the kind of bond that only can be enjoyed by two contrarians who grew up together in a small town. And now, having both risen far beyond the expectations anyone ever had of them, they both looked out on a vast campaign, one whose scope couldn't possibly be greater to test the very limits of Spartan strength and leadership against the mightiest foe of all, Persia. And now they both had come to realize bitterly that the campaign simply wasn't big enough for both of them. And yet, all that is recorded of Lysander's response to this abasement he was experiencing at this point is a brief conversation. Lysander requests an audience with his old messmate, and he addresses the king in front of his advisors, and he says, 
Indeed, Agesilaus, you know very well how to lower your friends. To which Agesilaus replies, Yes, if they desire to be greater than me. But those who increase my power may rightly expect to have a share in it. And to this barb, as if Lysander had not increased Agesilaus more than any man on earth, Lysander simply replied, Well, perhaps, Agesilaus, you are acting more properly than I was. But, he continued, grant me one favor, as much for the sake of those who look to us for guidance as for my own. Please, station me somewhere else where I will be less obnoxious to you. Wherever I go, I will endeavor to aid your purposes. And that was all. In the face of intense shame, and we may suspect bitter outrage at the way his former friend was treating him, Lysander kept his cool. He didn't defect to the Persians or take refuge at the court of some luxurious tyrant, drinking and partying his anger away, as many a dissident had done before and after him, Spartans included. No. He once again offered back to the king and to his fatherland, his faithful obedience. What life is there for a Spartan outside Sparta? Agesilaus, who was now apparently satisfied that he had snapped Lysander's will to dominate, that he had permanently rearranged their relationship in the eyes of everyone, he finally gave Lysander a decent job. He sent him to Thrace, across the straits, where Lysander performed his duty admirably. He persuaded a local Persian magnate to defect and join the Greek cause. At the end of the year, Lysander returned home from his tour of duty with the rest of the 30 Spartiate advisors that had joined the king. They were all private citizens once again, and they exchanged places with another 30 who were sent out for their turn in leadership. And so Agesilaus' great Persian expedition was underway. But it was not Lysander's fate to be a character in that story anymore, even though it was most of all him who made it all possible in the first place. Because trouble was breaking out closer to home. Why was it that the Greeks were always so prone to fighting each other? Haven't they had enough internecine strife by now to satisfy a generation, or maybe 10 generations? But no, the Peloponnesian War did not leave all the victors satisfied. A peace treaty still holds in the mainland of Greece, for now. But the Thebans and the Corinthians still feel that the Spartans have taken a disproportionate share of the rewards of victory, didn't many other Greek cities contribute to the winning cause over Athens? Where were their lavish victory trophies at Delphi? Where were the lucrative foreign governorships for their leading citizens? And the Spartans were even promoting to the rank of governor or harmost many of the helots, their semi-slave subject population from the nearby region of Messenia. The Thebans were very vocal in their complaints among the other Greek cities, and their attempts to shame Sparta into making concessions so Thebes could, for example, claim a greater share of the war booty, these irritate the Spartans to no end. But 
Now, with the Spartans distracted with this megalomaniacal foreign venture, the Thebans could see it's an excellent time to act and maybe knock the Spartans off balance, seize influence over some regions that they control, peel off some allies, maybe even make a bid for supremacy in Greece. And all it took was a little puff of wind to set them in action. And that puff came in the form of another generous helping of what else but Persian gold. The Persian satrap in Asia has quickly gotten sick of dealing with Spartan harassment, and he's very well informed about the current diplomatic situation in Greece. So he sends gold coins, 50 talents worth, to be divided among the war hawks at Thebes, Corinth, and Argos, on condition that they get their cities to rebel against Sparta. 50 talents, a tenth of what Cyrus promised Lysander on his first visit. It's a sizable sum for an individual, but really, to move three powerful city-states to war, it's merely a puff of wind, a spark thrown in a tinderbox. The pro-war agitators at Thebes snap into action, but they can't just get their city to attack Sparta outright. They swore oaths to uphold the peace. That's what you always do. You make solemn libations and prayers. You say, may the gods curse us if we break the peace. May our women be barren and locusts and so on and so on. And it's a serious thing to break that. No, you need a plausible pretext, some trouble to stir up, to get justice on your side. And so here's how you do it. The Thebans find two bordering Greek tribes in the mountainous regions west of Boeotia, around Delphi, the Phocians and the Locrians. And one of these is solidly allied with Sparta and one is with Thebes. And so the Thebans get their buddies, the Locrians, to go into a few villages that are in this disputed borderland between the two tribes and then forcibly demand tribute like they own the place. So they rough some people up and take some money. And the Thebans are hoping that the Phocians will retaliate against their hated neighbors. And they were not disappointed. The Phocians sweep in and go even beyond the disputed territory. They go on a plundering raid deep into Locris to teach those guys a lesson. Perfect. The Thebans quickly vote to defend their innocent and aggrieved neighbors, the Locrians. They make a counter-invasion into Phocian territory. And just as planned, the Phocians send ambassadors to their faraway patrons, the Lacedaemonians. And what do you know? There are voices at Sparta that are eager to have a pretext too, to sort out things with the griping Thebans once and for all. And the voice rising above all, advocating a decisive response, is Lysander. Not only did Lysander predict an inevitable rivalry with Thebes long ago, when he insisted that Sparta ignore their demand to raise Athens to the ground right after the war, the Thebans were also the ones chiefly to blame for the downfall of Lysander's regime of the Thirty at Athens. They secretly harbored Thrasybulus and the Democrat dissidents. So it was sort of personal, but it was also public, and Lysander could point to other offenses that were affronts against the whole Spartan state. The Thebans, even though they were allies, were now refusing to join Agesilaus' Persian campaign. Lysander stirs up the Ephers, who stir up the Gerousia, 
and Sparta declares war on Thebes and sends Lysander out with an advance force. And he was going to bring a small detachment of Spartans with him to come into Boeotia from the west, from the region of Phocis, where they were first going to pick up a force of soldiers from the Phocians, the mountain tribesmen who got them into this situation in the first place. And Phocis is, again, around Delphi, if you know your geography of central Greece. And the place where they were headed, Boeotia, that's the fertile region of low-lying valleys that Thebes was the dominant city in. And in those days, there was a large lake in central Boeotia called Lake Copais, or Copais. And it was actually drained to make farmland in the 19th century, so it's not there anymore, but it was. Lysander picks up his troops, and he moves in. And he captures one of the cities by this lake, Livadia, plunders it. And another city he gets to join up with the Spartans willingly, or Cominus. And to do this all, he would have had to pass by a little town that some 450 years later became the birthplace of Plutarch himself. It's called Chironea. But Lysander now is only leading the smaller of two pincers that the Spartans have sent in to squeeze the Thebans. They also sent in King Pausanias from the southeast. He was going to circle around Mount Kithiron. Mount Kithiron, where, according to the myth, the god Dionysus once sent the maddened women of Thebes to haunt the woods in a Bacchic frenzy. Ah, King Pausanias, the man who toppled the Thirty at Athens by forcing the parties in the Civil War to reconcile. The man who had thus toppled Lysander. Relations between them over the years hadn't been that great. After the fall of the Thirty, Lysander persuaded King Agus to prosecute Pausanias for betraying Sparta's interests. Pausanias was acquitted, but it was a very close vote. But that was almost a decade ago, and anyway, you could count on a Spartan to do his duty. The other king was, of course, preoccupied, and so the Spartans sent King Pausanias. He was supposed to meet Lysander on an appointed day and an appointed place that Lysander was supposed to determine. And it must have been on Lysander's mind that Pausanias was not, in fact, in favor of opening up a new war with Thebes. He wasn't in favor of Agesilaus' great Asian invasion either, for that matter. Pausanias all along was in the camp in Sparta, favoring what you might describe as a small Sparta policy. Stick to our little region in the Peloponnese, and we won't have to bring in any political innovations. We won't risk losing our reputation for justice, nor expend our most precious resource, the personal excellence of our elite soldiers, who are getting fewer and fewer by the year. Maybe we can even learn to enjoy peace. Such were the thoughts of Pausanias and men like him. But people like Lysander and Agesilaus would ask, was this not an abdication of the duty for the best men to lead, to take on the full risk of being and being excellent? And more concretely, did that policy not effectively mean conceding to the great foreign menace in the East that would gradually wrap its tendrils tighter and tighter around the Greeks until it choked out all freedom in their world? And even more revolting, 
was the thought of conceding to haughty insults from these Boeotian pig farmers who are clearly daring the Spartans to do something. So, Pausanias wasn't in favor of a new war with Thebes. Still, you could count on a Spartan to do his duty, right? Well, in the meantime, the Thebans haven't been sitting idle either. They send an embassy exactly where you'd expect, Athens. And there they make the case to the Athenians that now is the time to join cause with them and seize back their former prestige. It took a little effort to get over the whole we voted to annihilate your city thing. The Thebans explained that that was just one ambassador. The Spartan conference couldn't be taken to represent all of the Thebans who loved the Athenian rebel spirit who, after all, had helped Thrasybulus and the Democrats take the city back. And now, who could seriously doubt that Sparta intended to dominate all of Greece like tyrants? Greece needed Athens now. And the Spartans are weaker now than the Athenians were at the start of the Great Peloponnesian War. If Thebes and Athens unite, all the disgruntled Spartan allies, they're silent now, of course, but they're seething for the same reasons we are. All of their allies will rise up against them. And Thrasybulus himself is now one of the preeminent politicians in Athens, and he persuades the Athenians to take part in this new war. Another storm is brewing. Lysander chooses as the rally point for the two pincers, a key city in the Boeotian League that's still loyal to Thebes. It was called Haliartus on the south shore of Lake Copaeus, and he sends word to Pausanias. And then when the time comes, and the night before the appointed day, Lysander moves out and he marches his troops toward Haliartus, and they arrive on a hill overlooking the city at dawn. And as Lysander looked out over the narrow strip of land Haliartus sat on between the hills and the lake shore, it must have occurred to him, today would be the most decisive action to break the post-war peace. It was now, by our modern reckoning, 394 BC, 10 years since the end of the Great Peloponnesian War, 10 years since the Athenians finally surrendered, 10 years of relative quiet among the Greeks. But when the Spartans seized Haliartus today and the passageway here that it controlled, whether by persuasion or force, they would choke off Thebes' access to the western regions of their confederacy. The Thebans, descendants of the men who sprang up from the dragon's teeth sown by Cadmus. They were the leading city of the confederacy called the Boeotian League. Orchomenus, again, had come over willingly to the Spartans, seized its freedom, you might say, and many people there resented Thebes' domination of Boeotia. Orchomenus was on the western fringe of the League's territory, but Haliartus was right in Thebes' backyard. As Lysander looked toward the sun, cresting over the mountains in the east, he could see the rich Theban farmlands and the smoke rising from the ancient city of Oedipus the king. He watched and waited, but there was no sign of Pausanias. Where was the king and the rest of the Peloponnesian army? They wait and watch for hours, 
The day begins to grow late. What was Pausanias up to? Was there a chance he had some mischief up his sleeve, like he had pulled out at Athens long ago? Was he secretly negotiating with Theban leaders to arrive at some peace settlement before the Spartans had a chance to put them in their place? And of course, one couldn't forget the fact that whenever the king did finally decide to grace Lysander with his presence, he would assume executive control of all the forces on the field. Did Lysander really need Pausanias' help to liberate this little Boeotian hamlet from its Theban overlords? And so, for reasons that we will never fully know, Lysander decided to move, and he marched his forces down to the city walls. And once he stands before the city walls, troops drawn up in battle array, he has his herald approach and call out to the men of Haliartus some generous terms if they will accept and join the Spartan cause. But in response, all of a sudden, up on the rampart, there flashes out a row of hoplite shields bearing the unmistakable dragon insignia. The Thebans were in the city. Unknown to Lysander, the Thebans had somehow intercepted the message about his rendezvous point just in time, and they sent out their own troops in the middle of the night to occupy Haliartus and keep it from defecting. Very well, then, not by persuasion, but by force. Lysander would, of course, be breaking one of the cardinal principles that the Spartans ordinarily adhered to with great scruple, avoid attacking walled cities. It didn't play to their advantage in pitched infantry battles and man-to-man -man combat. But this wasn't Athens or Corinth. It was just little Haliartus, right? Lysander signals to his Phocian soldiers. They've got their assault ladders ready and a battering ram, and they shoot a volley, and he sounds the charge. But shortly after the assault starts, Lysander hears a sound. He looks back to the shore. He sees the dust of cavalry. He hears a rumbling. And now he realizes the Thebans have brought another army and kept it outside the walls, kept it secret until just this moment. Lysander was already committed at the fortification. They engage Lysander's forces from the rear. All of a sudden, he's fighting a battle on two opposite fronts. This is not good, not good. Can he salvage it? Maybe. But before he has time to react, the gates of Haliartus swing open and out charges an elite Theban hoplite force, with the men of Haliartus behind them, all bristling with spears. What chance of victory do they have now? Should they try to escape? No, to flee would be the worst thing for Spartans. It would be best to win or to die. May the gods grant victory to the bravest. Lysander commands his men in the rear to draw off the Theban cavalry toward the hills. They were mostly Phocians, mountain men. They'd have the advantage there. He'll buy them time here with his forward troops and his elite Spartan guard. And then, Lysander turned back to Haliartus 
He looked to his captains, to his guardsmen, to his trusty seer, his war priest. After so many battles together, so many years spent in the service of their country, no words were necessary. They locked shields, narrowed their eyes on the city gate, and made one last charge for Lagadiamond. The Phocian troops retreat to the rough and hilly ground behind the city with the Thebans in hot pursuit. And there they turn and rally and they push the Thebans back. They kill hundreds and they put the rest to flight. But as they're celebrating their victory, a few bloodied Spartan guards run up who they recognize as troops who were fighting the battle at the city gates. Lysander has fallen, together with his seer and some of his most loyal bodyguards. Their bodies lie beside the walls. The enemy controls the city, and the enemy controls the plain. At this news, the Phocians' joy turns to anguish and then to desperation. They spend the rest of the day gathering the dead that they can get to and tending the wounded. And the next day, Pausanias arrives. It wasn't malice or treachery that delayed him, he later claimed. Rather, he just never got the message because the Thebans intercepted the messenger. Most of the Phocians, meanwhile, have abandoned their post and faded back into the hills during the night. They were lost there, without the Spartan leadership to guide them. Pausanias holds a war council with his generals and the elder Spartan warriors. They have to recover Lysander's body, there's no question. Should they ask for a truce, implicitly conceding defeat? Or should they charge the walls under arms? The vote of the elder warriors is to fight. If they conquered, they would give him burial. But if they were vanquished, it would be a glorious thing to lie dead with their general. But Pausanias reasoned, it would be hard to take the city now and hard even just to take Lysander's body without heavy losses, with stones and arrows raining down on them from the walls and cavalry harassing them from the flank. And soon they get word that the Athenians have arrived in the area with a strong force to join up with the Thebans. Athenians led by who else but Pausanias' old friend, Thrasybulus, the Democrat rebel he put in power. The risk is too great. Pausanias calls for a truce. This campaign is over. And Plutarch tells of an encounter that happened after the battle. It is told, quote, that a certain Phocian recounting the action to another who was not in it said that the enemy fell upon them just after Lysander had crossed the Hoplites. And then a Spartan, who was a friend of Lysander, asked in amazement what he meant by Hoplites, for he did not know the name. Indeed it was there, said the Phocian, that the enemy slew the foremost of us, for the stream that flows past the city is called the Hoplites. On hearing this, the Spartan burst into tears, and said that man could not escape his destiny. For Lysander, as it appears, had received an oracle running thus, Beyond thy guard I bid thee against a sounding hoplites and an earth-born dragon craftily coming behind thee. 
And the Theban who killed him did indeed have a dragon emblazoned on his shield. End quote. The Spartans recovered the bodies of their dead under truce, and they took Lysander's body and buried it nearby, in friendly territory, in focus. And a monument stood there in Plutarch's day, 500 years later, and Plutarch saw it often because, as he explains, the monument was on the road leading from his hometown, Chironea, to the Oracle of Delphi, where Plutarch served as one of the priests. The Lacedaemonians were furious when they heard about the death of Lysander, and they blamed King Pausanias and would hear no excuses. They summoned the king to a trial for his life on charges not just of willfully abandoning Lysander to the Thebans and surrendering to the Thebans there afterwards without a fight, but they tried him once again for betraying Sparta by releasing Thrasybulus and the men in the Piraeus nearly a decade earlier, for recent developments had clearly shown concerning Athenian affairs that Lysander was the man who truly advised the policy and line with Sparta's long-term interests. Pausanias, however, refused to go home. He was condemned to death in absentia and lived out the rest of his days as a suppliant in the temple of Athena in nearby Tegea. And the loss was made even more bitter to the Spartans when they learned about Lysander's estate. For, as Plutarch tells, the poverty of Lysander, which was discovered at his death, made his excellence more apparent to all since from the vast homage paid to him by cities and the great king, the king of Persia, that is, he had not, even in the slightest degree, sought to amass money for the aggrandizement of his family. And the men who were engaged to his daughters even called off their weddings when they discovered how meager Lysander's estate was. For this, they were fined by the ephors, for they had flattered Lysander when they thought he was a rich man, but when they discovered instead that he was merely a just man and a good man, they lost interest. And later on, some dispute arose at Sparta with her allies, and it became necessary to go through some of Lysander's personal records. King Agesilaus went into his house to search for documents useful to his purpose. And as he rooted around, he discovered the chest containing the speech that Lysander had once commissioned, that argued for a change to the Spartan constitution to allow the kingship to be open not just to the two royal families, but to all Spartans, and for it to be rewarded to the one chosen as the best man. A frightening, revolutionary speech. And Agesilaus had every intention of bringing this speech out into the public to show the Spartans what kind of man they had really been dealing with. But the official who was the head ephor for the year, Lacratidas, a prudent man, held Agesilaus back, saying they ought not to dig Lysander up again, but rather bury the speech along with him, since it was composed with such seductive persuasion. And Sparta by that point had already experienced attempts at revolution championed by men of much less merit and credibility than Lysander, and had only barely been saved. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode where we'll do some analysis and takeaways on Lysander. If you enjoyed this, 
please consider sharing it with a friend or writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. Also, sign up for our mailing list at ancientlifecoach.com where I share concisely the most action-guiding and entertaining stories and principles I find in my searches through Plutarch and other great ancient authors. Stay strong, stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>